Amen, amen. We're going to have a seat. And uh, so, so good to be back uh, together with you all to open our Bibles and to let God and His Word uh, speak to us. I, I just want to make a quick note last week. So, so thankful uh, for Chris Risk uh, coming in and pinch hitting for me, if you will, uh, on sh short notice and really appreciated what he did uh, with Psalm 107 and really did a great job uh, in that text. I know I was really helped and encouraged in that. I hope and trust uh, that you were helped and encouraged in that uh, as well. And so super thankful for that and just for the uh, really the, the, the deep bench that God has given us at this church of faithful men who can preach uh, the word. But this morning, we're back in uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, in fact, we're in 1 Samuel 17. That's where we're at this morning. And we come to an account that all of us at some level are familiar with. In fact, you could argue uh, that the story of David and Goliath is the best known account in all of the Bible. And so because of that, sometimes we come to really familiar text and, and then there's almost kind of this familiarity or maybe we even put it on autopilot or like, ah, I know this, been there, got it. So let me just start by uh, maybe introducing this in a way that's maybe a little different than what you would have anticipated. But here's what you have to understand, church. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus. Did you, did you get that? Is that registering? Is that connecting? Because here's what we do. We do, we do a massive disservice to God's Word. When we open the Bible and, and we, we inject ourselves into the story of the Bible and we make ourselves the hero of the Bible. And I don't think there's any place in all of the scriptures that we do this more than with David and Goliath. We make ourselves the hero. And we make this account not about God delivering his people, but we make it about how you and I overcome our metaphorical giants or, or, or how some self-help about how we're going to be confident in the midst of adversity or some other thing. But the Bible's not about us, not primarily. It's about Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. And what this text is about is it's going to point us to, direct us to, move us to the victory that Jesus secures for us in defeating our greatest enemy, which is sin. That's what this, is account, this account is about. It's not about us conquering some difficult person or some difficult circumstance. It is about God delivering his people from their greatest enemy, which is sin. And so here's really the main idea of what God's word is going to lead us to this morning, is that God himself delivers his people from our defiant enemy. Let me say that again, that God himself is going to deliver you and I from our defiant enemy. And this account of David and Goliath is really a picture of God's deliverance of his people from their greatest enemy. And then you might be like, whoa, whoa, this is totally different than how I've heard this or, or how I've understood this or how I've been conditioned to think about this. And so maybe even in this moment, you got to just kind of pause and reorient yourself. This text isn't about you. It's about your Savior. Now, parts of the Bible are certainly directed toward us, but any part of the Bible that speaks to us is ultimately about how we find our place in God's story, not how God finds his place in our story. That's backwards, right? So this is unequivocally about 
Jesus. And so I think on the heels of that, before we go any further, why don't we pause? Let's ask the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and insight uh, to to see this rightly uh, for the beautiful text that it is, uh, but to not distort it or to manipulate it in some of the ways that we're prone to do. So why don't you join me as we pray, uh, and then we'll walk through this great text. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. God, how your word gives wisdom and insight and clarity. God, how your word points us to you, how it is honest about us, uh, and how we so desperately need you. And God, we pray in these next few moments that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work amongst your people, to open our eyes to see the truth and the glories of you. Uh, God, to see how you're delivering your people and how you're delivering us from our defiant enemy. God, how how you're, you're going before us and rescuing us from the sin in our lives. And God, as always, uh, not only for us, but we always want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, we're praying for Center City uh, and for Spencer Brown. God, thank you for that body of believers uh, that's doing faithful, good gospel work downtown. And God, we pray that you'd have your hand on them in the same way that we long and desire that you'd have your hand on us. And so God, would you open your word now? Would you help us to see? Would you help us to, to, to know and to understand all that you have for us? And so we pray all of this. In your name, for your glory, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Defiance and Deliverance. Defiance and Deliverance. You may be like, that's kind of an odd title for David and Goliath. But here's what we're going to see in the text. As we start moving our way through the text, there are two words that are going to show up over and over and over again. One is defy, and the other is deliver. And so if you think of uh, like a train track with two parallel tracks that run down the line, uh, these two themes that drive heavily through this text are, are really framing this account and helping us to understand not only what God is doing, uh, but really it's emphasizing God's salvation and deliverance of his people and what it is that we're saved from. So defiance and deliverance. So let's begin with this idea. Look at your Bibles, verses 1 through 11, and what we see unfolding at the beginning of this narrative is this, and it's a defiant enemy taunts the people of God. There is a defiant enemy who's taunting the people of God. Look at your Bibles. Here's what God's Word says to us. It says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So you've got these two armies. The Philistines are encroaching on the people of Israel, and so they're kind of lining up for battle on these two hillsides, and the valley's left open in between. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He's a monster over nine feet tall. And a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Uh, Some of your Bibles might refer to that as scale armor, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. So loaded is he militarily that he's got to have someone else carry a shield into battle. And he stood, look at verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
It's like, hey, let's just go one-to-one, winner-take-all. <laughs> we win, uh, you serve us, you win, we serve you. Verse 10, and the Philistine said, I want to circle this word, I, here's the first of a number of times we're going to see this, defy. I defy the ranks of Israel this day, which is really not only defying the ranks of Israel, but the God of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so in chapter 16, you've got this really exciting account of David being anointed as king. But now the story or the account of 1 Samuel moves back to the rest of Israel. And trouble has found them on the battlefield, uh, particularly with the Philistines, but, but more notably with Goliath. And there's this uh, proposition of this battle as the Philistines are encroaching on the people of Israel. And here's what you have to understand about military battles, particularly in the Bible. It, it, it's not just that they're fighting each other. How they were understood is that these battles were essentially seen as the, the gods of each of the respective nations uh, warring against one another. And so the more powerful god would be the god that would deliver his nation or her nation or whatever the god was from uh, the other nation that they were fighting. Uh, and so that would seen in a, be seen in a total military conflict or even in this one-to-one battle. The point being that this is not just two guys that are going to go out and fight. There's very much a spiritual battle that's implied in what's happening here. In fact, you, you could say that Goliath represents spiritual opposition to the people of God and to God himself. And in a sense, Goliath is actually synonymous with Satan in his opposition and defiance of God and the people of God. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Even some of the things that are laid out in the text. The size of Goliath reflects the power of Satan. Here is this large, imposing figure, this champion, if you will, And while he's not all-powerful, he's also not powerless. His taunts and his defiance reflect the hostility of Satan toward God. The disdain and the defiance of Goliath matches the disdain and the defiance of Satan towards God and towards the people of God. But this third item that's often missed because it doesn't necessarily translate for us in English, but in the Hebrew it's teased out a little bit more, that the armor of Goliath actually reflects the imagery of Satan. So that coat of mail, uh, some of your translations uh, more appropriately refer to it as scale armor. But the point being this, that the author of 1 Samuel is attempting to make a connection for the reader that depicts Goliath as a reptile-like or serpent-like figure. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, you're like, wait, wait, so you're telling me that he sees Goliath as a snake. That's exactly what I'm telling you. And and this will become more prominent. We get later into this account. But I I just want you to see it right now while we're in this first part of the text. And just how similar Goliath is and how synonymous Goliath is with respect to the serpent. And then you get down to verse 10. And really his, his final line that Goliath makes, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Matching the attitude, matching the demeanor of Satan, that there's this defiant enemy, this defiant taunt that comes from this enemy to the people of God. And this enemy and this taunt is similar to the same taunts that came from the enemy to Adam and, uh, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And the defiance of God that we see in Genesis 3. This same enemy and these same taunts litter the pages of scripture. And this same enemy and these same taunts are, are riddled throughout all of human history. 
And maybe, just maybe, that same taunt, that same defiance is echoing or ringing in your minds and your heads this morning. And maybe some of you are struggling with this idea of the defiance of this enemy. And, and maybe there is some credibility. and Maybe there is some credence to what he's saying. And why is it that I'm persevering in the faith? And why do I keep pressing forward? It just seems like the enemy is always victorious. And if you find yourself wrestling with this, do not miss what you see in verse 11. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Saul would have been the logical choice to go out and fight this enemy, right? He was the king that they selected to go fight on behalf of the nation. But this king here is dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, remember, what happened to Saul? I know it's been a couple weeks ago, uh, but what happened to Saul in chapter 16? The Spirit of the Lord departed from him. Saul was cut off from the Lord. And so here's why this is so important. Listen to me, church. Listen. Don't miss this. When we are isolated from the Lord, when we are cut off from the Lord, the taunts and the threats of the enemy are going to lead us to a place of terror and fear. Did you hear that? Loved ones, when you get to a place where you are cut off, where you're isolated, where, when you're not walking in an abiding presence of the Lord, then when you look at the world and you hear the taunts and you hear the threats, you're not going to respond with confidence in God. You're going to respond in terror and fear, which is exactly what's happening here. And church, we need to get this. Right? The issue for, for Saul and the issue for uh, the army of Israel, it's not Goliath. Their issue is their failure to trust and abide in the Lord. That's their issue. That's why they're so afraid. Goliath is simply a means that just exposes the reality that they're not really trusting in the Lord. That they've got their eyes fixed somewhere else. That they're cut off from Christ. And this is why it's so important for us that we don't ever get to that place where we're not isolated, we're not cut off, we're not removed from the presence of the Lord because Jesus is the one who's gonna shield us. Jesus is the one that's gonna protect us from the taunts and the threats and the attacks of the enemy. So let me just ask you, for you personally, in your life, have you felt threatened? Do you feel dismayed? Are you afraid? Are you doubting the power of God? Are you doubting the goodness of God? Are you doubting the faithfulness of God? And as you think about those things, answer this question. Am I abiding in him or am I cut off from him? Am I abiding in him or am I cut off from him? Is he the source of my strength and hope or is God on the periphery of my life? Because already God's word is displaying this incredibly uh, significant principle that has major ramifications for how we live our lives, particularly in this stretch of history that we find ourselves in. Those that are separated from the abiding presence of the Lord are gonna find themselves terrified at the threats and the taunts of the world and the enemy. And that might be why some of you are paralyzed in your life right now. Because you've been isolated from the Lord, you've been cut off from the Lord, and so the threats and the taunts, they come, and there's not a confidence in God there's just a sense of being dismayed and greatly afraid. A defiant enemy taunts the people of God. Secondly, look at verses 12 through 23. And here's what we see God doing here is that God is sovereignly aligning all things for his glory. Right? God is just aligning, orchestrating, putting all these things together. Look at your Bibles. And I'm going to read from verses 12 through 23. And the story pivots back to David in verse 12. It says this, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. The days of Saul, the man, he's talking about Jeff, he was already old and advanced in years. 
And the three eldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and he names them there, right? Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema, verse 14. David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Verse 19, now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines, which is kind of funny because they weren't fighting. They were just running and cowering in fear. Uh, but that's, uh, that's how it's described. Verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and all the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage. Saul went and hid in the baggage. David's like, hold this. I got to get out and see what's going on. Right? Stark contrast between these two kings. And he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And don't miss this last line. And David heard them. See, David heard, someone finally heard who was going to do something about this enemy. But what we see in these verses is that God is sovereignly aligning all things for his glory. And so on the heels of Goliath and his threat and this taunt, uh, where the, the story returns now to David, uh, he's too young to serve in the military. That's why he's not out there. He's not old enough to serve in the military. Uh, but God sovereignly has David on that battlefield, on that day, to hear the taunts of Goliath so that he can respond both, both for the well-being of Israel, but also for God's glory. Because God is sovereignly aligning all things for his glory. Make two notes of uh, two things here in uh, this section. First of all, that God sovereignly aligns our circumstances for his glory. That loved ones, God is sovereignly aligning your circumstances for his glory. Now there's a number of ways that we see this uh, unfolding in these verses. Look at verse 13. You've got David's brothers who are out on the battlefield. You're like, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it was the responsibility of the family to feed and to care for their different family members who were on the battlefield. And so that's why in verse 17, Jesse tells David, hey, go take this food to your brothers so they have something to eat. <clears throat> that's part of the circumstance that God is using to get David out onto the battlefield so he can hear the threats and taunts of Goliath. In verse 15, we're told that David is caring for uh, his sheep. And we knew that he was a shepherd, but what we're going to see later is that his time as a shepherd is what prepared him for his showdown with Goliath. And it wasn't some kind of military prowess, but it was a confidence, a growing and deepening confidence in God's ability to deliver him. That, 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 that was uh, fostered by the circumstance of his shepherding. And then in verse 16, it makes this note that for 40 days, Goliath is coming forward and doing this. And the Bible never gives us details that are innocuous. They're always there for a reason. And that 40 days is an important one. Why 40 days? Why would that be significant? Why would that be important? Because in the Bible, 40 is often synonymous with a period of testing. Right? You had Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. Here, Goliath for 40 days has taunted the people of Israel. And what have they done about it? Nothing. They haven't done anything about it. Essentially, what we're seeing here is that Israel has failed this test. 
No one believes, no one trusts, no one has confidence in the Lord until this one who is typological of Jesus is going to show up and he's going to be obedient on behalf of a faithless nation, which really is just this rich, beautiful gospel connection for our lives. In the same ways that we fail to be fully obedient, God sends one who will be obedient in all ways and in all facets in our place, right? Jesus is the one who will endure our testing. And so it's not an accident that on the 40th day, David's out there on the battlefield. The nation has failed, but God sends one who won't fail. And in the same way that God's sovereignly aligning the circumstances in 1 Samuel 17, he's sovereignly aligning the circumstances in your life. And so where God has you professionally, where God has you personally, where God has you relationally, where God has you geographically, and on and on we could go. We're all a part of the ways that God is sovereignly aligning all things in your life to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And so when you look at your life circumstances right now, and for some of you they're pressing in and they're hard and they're demanding and they're difficult. Others of you are like, man, it's been the greatest year of my life. Those people are out there, I promise. There's not very many of them. But there's a handful of people like 2020 was the best year ever. If you're one of them, come talk to me afterwards. I, I, I'm saying they're out there. I don't know that I've actually met that person. But for, for any of us, regardless of where we find ourselves, you might find yourself saying, why is this happening? Why is this not happening? What, what are we doing here? You're not going to know every detail. You're not going to be able to identify every motivation and reason as to why. But what you can confidently know is that God is sovereignly aligning the circumstances in your life for his glory. And we would be best served to lean into that even if we can't see it, even if we can't identify it. There's this really interesting note. It's kind of innocuous. Verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions as he went as Jesse had commanded him. Right, he's just simply being obedient to his dad. I promise you David had no idea what was waiting for him that day. There's no way he could have known it all. There's no way he could have seen it all. Right? He, he, didn't, he, he didn't know all the different ways that God was sovereignly aligning all the circumstances in his life in the same way that you're not going to know it all. I'm not asking you to be able to see it. But I think what God's word is pushing us towards is a place where we're willing to trust that God is doing it. That God is sovereignly aligning our circumstances for his purposes and for his glory. So loved one, will you trust that God is doing that even if you can't see it? Will you trust him in that? That he's, he's aligning all of these things. But not only is he aligning our circumstances, God's also sovereignly aligning our interactions for his glory. Let I me mean, just look at these last four words of verse 23. It says, and David heard him. Right? David heard. David's there. There's this interaction between uh, this champion giant and this tiny shepherd boy. Right? But God is sovereignly aligning not just our circumstances, but also our interactions. See, God had David that there that day, then on the 40th day, to hear the taunts and the threats of Goliath, because for 40 days, faithless Israel has done nothing about it, but God sent one who's pointing us to a greater one who's going to be obedient in our place. That someone's going to hear this threat and this taunt, and he's going to act on behalf of the Lord, because God is using our interactions to accomplish his purposes for his glory. 
You ever had this happen? Right, some meeting, some encounter, and maybe it feels chance or it feels coincidental. But in hindsight, you're like, man, I'm so glad that person showed up at that time. It's, it's almost like God lined that up or I needed that or if that person wouldn't have shown up, like this wouldn't have happened. Right? All of us have situations like that. I mean, I can think of a number of these in my life, but probably the most notable one came when I was 20 years old. I just spent the entire summer in West Africa, came home, and in the middle of September, uh, which happened to be 2001, uh, I began to get sick and ill because I had a form of malaria. And it didn't manifest itself till I got back stateside. Right after 9-11, so I show up literally a week after 9-11 to the hospital. They think I'm a terrorist, right? Like I'm there to kill the hospital. And it's like, no, no, I'm just sick and I was in West Africa and I don't know what's going on. Now think about this for a moment. Flagstaff's not a big community. You're in Arizona and you're in Flagstaff, you're at 7,000 feet. It's freezing cold and it's super dry. You know how many mosquitoes live in Arizona? None. Okay, there are like no mosquitoes in Arizona. So how many malaria doctors are lining up for gigs in Flagstaff? There's one. Because three weeks, three weeks before I walked into the hospital, Flagstaff Medical Center hired a new head of infectious disease, a guy named Mark Lacey, who had spent the last four years of his life living in the Asian Pacific. You ready for this? Perfecting a medication that eradicates malaria from the body because historically they'd only treated symptoms. That guy's hanging out in Flagstaff, why? Apparently to save my life. Bottom line, I'm alive today. Listen, I'm alive today because God sovereignly aligns our, not only our circumstances, but also our interactions. That's what's happening here. God's lining all of this stuff up for his purposes. And again, David didn't know it all. He couldn't identify it all. I'm not asking you to see it all. But church, I'm asking you to trust that God is doing that. That every single interaction that you have, every circumstance in your life, all the different ways that God is orchestrating and aligning, that he's doing it for a purpose. That he has a greater purpose, a greater plan, a greater accomplishment that's going to come out of it, even if you can't see it in the moment. Oh, praise God that he sovereignly aligns all things for his glory. And so then in response to that, look at verse 24 and following. Here's our response, is that we put our confidence in the God who delivers his people. Right, you got this defiant enemy taunting the people of God. God's like, here, watch what I'm about to do. Let me show you how I'm lining all this stuff up. Okay, what do we do? We put all our confidence in the one who is capable of delivering his people. Look at your Bibles, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Like nothing's changed. Goliath comes out. Ah! and they run off and retreat. But there's someone different there that day. Look at verse 25. And the men of Israel said, they're speaking to David, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to, and here it is again, defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. It's like, hey, anyone that can kill this guy, no taxes, part of the royal family, and he's giving you a bride. David's like, I don't care about that. Like, what should be done for the man who kills his Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? Here's what David cares about. Look at what he says. For who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. But as we look at this, right, Goliath comes out again on the 40th day to taunt God and to taunt his people. 
And we see that our response is to place our confidence in the God who delivers his people. And so he comes out again and all the army just retreats and, and runs away and they're scared. And you can almost see David's kind of like left alone like, where are you guys going? What's going on here? And he's almost mystified at what's happening. And see, they're looking at Goliath and they're terrified. And David's like, no, no, that, that guy's got nothing on God. Are you, do you guys not see what's going on here? And of course, the irony of this moment and what's about to unfold is the people wanted a king to fight their battles for them. Right? That's what they wanted. They wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. And the king that they chose outsourced that responsibility. I'll pay someone and I'll give my daughter and no more taxes if someone else will do what I'm supposed to do. And God's like, that's cute. I'm going to give you a king who's going to actually go and fight on behalf of God's people. And you have these contrasting heart issues that are so stark in this part of the text. So here, let's just look at both of them for a moment. And what we see in the soldiers is this, is that a worldly perspective operates out of fear. A worldly perspective operates out of fear. These guys see Goliath and they run from him. Why? Because they're influenced by what they see more than they are influenced by their faith. See, they're fixated on what's right in front of them, what they can see, what they can observe, and that's driving how they are seeing everything. They assume that Goliath is going to win because they trust what they can see more than they trust in the Lord. I mean, God help us. God help us. That wouldn't be true of us as well, that we would not be making that same mistake and that same error. But here's what you got to understand. This is the same battle that you and I are waging today. That we got to keep asking ourselves the question over and over and over again, do I really trust the power of the living God to deliver me from my greatest enemy? Can God really do that? Because a perspective that has its eyes fixed on the world, a perspective that is fixated on what it can see. Listen to me, church. It's going to operate out of a place of fear. Not out of trust or confidence in the Lord. You're just going to be afraid and dismayed. So let's just lean into this here for a moment. In your life right now, do you find yourself being fearful? Do you find yourself being dismayed? Do you find yourself being anxious? Do you find yourself afraid? Like, well, it's not really a fair question, Mike. I mean, have you like read the news cycle? Are you aware of what's going on? There's all kinds of stuff. No, I'm aware. The question's intentional. I know there's all kinds of things in this world that, 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 that could cause us fear. I, I would venture to say a nine-foot giant that kills everything would also be something uh, that could cause fear. Here's the real question. What do you get your eyes fixed on? What are you looking at? What, what, what are you fixing your gaze on? See, because I think that, that, that really is exposing what's going on inside of us. And so God's word, quite graciously, I might add, might be rebuking us in the fear that we're exhibiting. Because look at what David's brother does. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, when he, when he spoke to the men, or sorry, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. David said, you couldn't be more wrong. You got no idea why I'm here, uh, but that is definitely not what's going on. But here's what's fascinating. In a moment where David's brother should have been convicted of his absence of faith. 
he found it easier to criticize David than to repent of his sin. And church, I wonder, I wonder for how many of us do we want to legitimize the fear in our lives instead of repenting of our absence of faith and our trust in the Lord? How many of us are doing this right now? How many of us are acting like Eliab that in, instead of just repenting of that sin of not trusting in the Lord, I'm gonna just look at someone else who's operating in faith and instead of saying, God, help me to be more like that, I'm just gonna criticize them. A worldly perspective operates out of fear. Here's the contrast. Look at verse 26 and 27. A godly perspective operates with confidence in God. I mean, D D David is, is stunned at what he sees, and what is most shocking to him is that this uncircumcised Philistine would have the gall to defy the armies of the living God. Like, th th that's the thing that he can't wrap his mind around. Right? The, 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 the soldiers look at him and they're like, oh, he's so terrifying. And David's like, who's this knucklehead outside the covenant people of God that would have the goal to say this about God and his people? He's like, I'm not going to stand for this. Similar to what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, right? When he says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he'll reap. If you reap to the flesh, you're going to sow a corruption and destruction. If you reap to the spirit, then eternal life. It's that same principle here. David, David's just incredulous that this pagan would openly mock God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's defying the armies of the living God? See, David sees Goliath for who he is because David has first seen God for who he is. That, 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 that's the distinction of what's happening here. D David's not looking at Goliath like, oh, he's huge. He's like, no, man, I saw God. You're tiny. That, that, that's what's going on here. He's like, I've got my eyes fixed on the Lord. So I, I know who you really are. But loved ones, is this how we're looking at life? Where our eyes are on the Lord and, and, and that's the lens by which we see everything else through? Or are we looking at the world and then trying to be like, okay, well, how, how should I see you, God? Wrong. And that's the contrast here. Soldiers see Goliath, they're terrified. David just sees God. And so he's confident. That's where his godly confidence comes from. It's not that he's strong. It's not that he's brave. It's not that he's courageous. He's just trusting in the one who is strong. Don't you want to live in that same place where the foundation of our life is a confidence in God? Because if we're going to do that, it requires that we've got our eyes fixed on the Lord and we see the rest of life through him, not the other way around. Loved ones, God is the one who is mighty. God is the one who is strong. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who's, who is supreme. And everything you and I see in the news and, and with nations and, and politics and COVID, all of them are submitted to him. Don't you ever think it's any other way. God is the mighty Savior and everything else resides under him. Bottom line, Quit looking at life through the lens of the world. Start looking at life through a confidence in God because your eyes are fixed on him. We place our confidence in the God who delivers his people. And then David just acts on it. That's the rest of the story. He's just acting on the confidence that he has in God. And he, here's what we see here in the, in, in the rest of the account is that God delivers his people from a defiant enemy. The rest of the chapter describes how God delivers his people 
uh, from, from this enemy. In fact, two things I want you to note here in this uh, final section. First of all, make note of this. It's our confidence in God's ability to deliver. And so now we're going to connect it to ourselves. But David's just acting on what we've been talking about. Verse 31, when the words of David or that David spoke were heard, they reported them or repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. So they're like, hey, Saul, someone's willing to fight him. So I was like, bring him. I want to talk to this guy. Let let, Let me talk to him. And so verse 32, he shows up. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail. Because of him, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now remember, Saul's not short. David was shorter. So you got Saul looking down on David, seeing this teenager, and he's like, yeah, that's not the guy to go. Right? And so that, that's why Saul says this in verse 33. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Now listen to what David says here in these next few verses. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and, circle that next word, delivered it out of his mouth. Right? This is the theme of deliverance that's going to start showing up. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now that's kind of a baller move. You're out in the woods and a bear comes and attacks a lamb and you just grab it by its beard and beat it to death? That's balling right there, okay? But here's, look at what he goes on to say. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, here's the connection, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He's like, I'm not going to deliver myself. God's going to deliver me. Who cares how, how tall I am or short I am? Or Like, no, no, you got to understand, this is what God is doing. See, David's, David's confidence is not in his prowess or his courage. His confidence is in the Lord who has already delivered him in a host of previous situations. David is just drawing on past experiences, which, loved ones, you and I would do well uh, to do in our own lives as well, to draw upon past experiences and trusting the Lord. This is our hope in the gospel. It's not that I can be good enough. It's not that I can do enough. It's not that I can be smart enough because none of that's gonna ever save me. Our hope is that God chooses to act on our behalf to deliver us from the condemnation that we deserved in our sin and rebellion against him. And so we're not putting hope or trust in ourselves. We're trusting in the Lord to deliver us. That's what David is doing here. Is this what we're doing in our lives? Are we trusting the Lord to deliver us from our sin? Are we trusting the Lord to deliver us from our wrath? Are we trusting the Lord to sanctify us and give us victory over sin? Are we trusting the Lord to purify us? Are we trusting the Lord to make us a holy people? Or are we just trying to do it on our own? And it's like, yeah, thanks for saving me. Let me go sanctify myself. Because look at these next few verses. Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He just went back to what he had always used. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Here's why I think David ultimately takes the armor off. I think at the end of the day, his confidence was in the Lord, and he, the, the, the armor was just a subtle temptation to put his confidence and his trust in something else. 
And so it wasn't that he wouldn't have liked the idea of having some of that stuff. He's like, you know what, man? This isn't the stuff that rescued me before. It was the Lord who delivered me before. God is going to be the one that's going to deliver me again if he's going to deliver me at all. Doesn't matter what I'm wearing. So I'm just going to go with what I'm used to and what I'm comfortable with. Is that true for us? Are we willing? Are we willing to trust exclusively in the Lord? Loved ones, what are you trusting or who are you trusting in to deliver you, to deliver your loved ones, your family and friends? Who are you trusting in to sanctify you, to purify you, to grow you? Are you looking for some tool, some method, or are you trusting in the Lord? Our confidence is in God's ability to deliver. Now, one other note here. Uh, we have to notice what exactly it is that we're being delivered from, and I think this is actually central to the entirety of this passage, and, and I think we tend to miss this, um, which is why we tend to run other directions with this account and, and really miss what I think the Bible is after. But Israel is being delivered from Goliath. And what is Goliath connected to here in verses 36 and 37? He's connected to other animals, right? There was a, pear, there was a bear, there was a lion, and there's Goliath. Now, earlier in the chapter, the author went to great lengths to connect Goliath's armor to a serpent. You're starting to connect the dots and starting to understand why this is really about Jesus? Because what it would seem that the author is doing is that this account is not about slaying our giants. This is a foreshadowing of what was initially predicted in Genesis 3, that the serpent was going to have its head crushed. This is the next creature, next animal that the one who God sends to deliver his people is going to tame, is going to destroy. Right? This isn't just about like, hey, I'm going to go fight this guy. No, this is the destruction of the serpent, the defiant one who is hostile against God. And this one who is typological of Jesus is going to come and he's going to deliver his people. Right? Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, who couldn't rescue themselves or couldn't deliver themselves, God sends another to deliver in their place. And so David, in his crushing of the head of the serpent, is really pointing us forward to Christ, who will once and for all crush the head of the serpent and all defiance against him. He's going to deliver us from our sin. That's what this is about. This whole story is about the deliverance and the saving work of God, the supremacy of God, the salvation of God, and it's foreshadowing the victory of Jesus over our greatest enemy. And that's why the giant is depicted as a serpent, because that serpent who defied God is going to have his head crushed as God delivers his people. And so our confidence, hear me, hear me, hear me, our confidence is in God's ability to deliver his people from their greatest enemy. Is that where your confidence is? Oh, God, help us, God, help us, God, help us. That's where our confidence would be. And then notice the close, right? We all know how this finishes. But as we look at the end of this account, here's what I want you to notice is that our concern is for God's exaltation. So I'm not going to read all of this for the sake of time, uh, but verse 41 to 44, right, they come out to the battlefield. Uh, no surprise, Goliath is mocking and taunting David, and he's like, you didn't even bring a weapon. I want you to jump down to verse 45. Here's David's response. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. He's like, yeah, you've, you've got some decent weapons. I got one weapon. Here it is. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. 
David's weaponizing God. That's what he's doing right here. He's like, that's great. You've got swords and spears and javelins. That's really cute. I've got the Lord of hosts who you defied. It's about to go very poorly for you, big guy. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, right? You see, you see, again, defy and deliver. It just continues to unfold. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That why, David, why? That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. That our God saves in a way that is distinct and unique and is unlike any other form of salvation. And that's true, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give you into our hand. And so on the heels of that, they go and fight, right? We know what happens. David drops him with a single stone sinking into his forehead. Goliath falls to the ground, verse 50. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. I love this line. There was no sword in David's hand, in the hand of David. He didn't even bring a knife to the gunfight. He just showed up with a couple rocks and a stick. And then David goes and he cuts off his head and this celebration ensues as Israel is victorious and the Philistines retreat. Let me just briefly come back to this idea of our concern is for God's exaltation. That's what David was concerned with. That's what he was consumed with. That's what he cared more than anything about. He wasn't concerned with his safety. He wasn't concerned about his profitability. He was concerned that everyone would know what is true of God, that God saves his people, that there is a God in Israel, and that God in Israel is the one who saves and delivers his people. Because there's no question who did this. Right? No one reads verse 8, 48 and 49 like, hey, we should study David's method of how he's slinging stones to improve our velocity. Nope. No one's saying that. Because we recognize this is the hand of the Lord that's doing this. And David's response, his concern, is with God's exaltation. Is our concern for God's exaltation. God help us. That would be what we are concerned with. Now, let me do this. Um, I know I didn't read every last verse. I'll encourage you to be a noble Berean and go check out the rest of that on your own as we'll pick it up in chapter 18 next week. But let me just take a moment here. Uh, how, how do we rightly apply this account? So I want to give you a handful of things real quick uh, and then I'm done. But I think for us to think rightly about this and to think with a gospel perspective on this, how, how do, what do we do with what we've seen here in the text? So six things uh, and they'll come quickly. Here we go. How do we apply this? First of all, we have to recognize our great enemy is sin. You got to understand, that's your greatest enemy, loved one. Your greatest foe is not some unfavorable circumstance. It's not a health issue. It's not a financial issue. It's not some kind of relational conflict. That's not your greatest foe. Your greatest enemy is sin. Sin is what's taunting us. Sin is what is pursuing us. Sin is what ushers death uh, into the world and into humanity. And sin is what we need to be delivered from. It's our greatest enemy. And we have to know what it is that we're even fighting against. Secondly, tied to that, we have to be honest about our defiance. Got to be honest about our place, our defiance. All of us, in some way, at some time, have demonstrated defiance toward God. We are born in sin, and we participate in sin. Now, now for many of us, 
Uh, that, that may not be true today, or that might not be comprehensively true or characteristic of us today. And we praise God for that. Right? That's the miraculous work of God, that that's not true of us, but it is very much a part of our history. And we have to be cognizant of that. And we have to be reminded of that. that, that that's part of what we're battling in the flesh. And often we want to put ourselves and inject ourselves into the story. Well, the role of David's already taken by a guy named Jesus. So here are the roles that are still up uh, for you and I to participate. You can be a cowardly Saul, you can be faithless Israel, or you can be a defiant Philistine. Who you're not is the Savior. Who you are is one that has defied the living God. And so what do you need? You need that God to deliver you. And so we must trust, thirdly, we must trust in God alone to deliver us. This is our only hope. This is the only hope that we have. And, and I think one of the modern tragedies of, of this story of David and Goliath, this is one of the most gospel-rich texts in all the Bible. And we often reduce it down to this self-absorbed, moralistic self-help. Gag. That's gross. Because this is about God's deliverance of his people from their greatest enemy. And honestly, loved ones, that's a far greater thing to preach than for you to be strong at work this week. Why don't you put your confidence in the Lord that's delivered you from sin and damnation? That's way better than you just having a good week at work. And so number four, because we're trusting in God alone to deliver us, that we thank and praise God for his deliverance. I, I think that should probably be the most natural response for us. This is something that we should be doing often. That, that as we are reminded again and again of what God has done for us, that we're responding in worship and praise and thanks to our great and glorious God and what he's done. Number five, that we operate from a place of confidence in God. So how we live our lives, how we think about things, how we respond to things. Quit looking at the world and being afraid. Get your eyes on Jesus and live in confidence in him. We operate from a place of confidence in God. Finally, this, that we must be consumed with a desire for God's glorification. Right, this, is, this is where David finished. This is where we should finish. That as he was concerned for the exaltation, for the glorification uh, of God, uh, that he was willing to set aside all kinds of different things. Right? He set aside his well-being. He set aside what was comfortable. He certainly set aside uh, his safety and general, general benefit to see God glorified. And that's what should be true of all of us. Are we willing to be that? Let, let me ask it this way. Is God's glorification worth your suffering? So if God being glorified means for you that you're going to be humbled, that you're going to be lowered, that you're going to be marginalized, that you're going to be maligned, that you're going to be mocked, that you're going to be mistreated. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And how you answer that question speaks volumes about the spiritual priorities in your life. We must be consumed with a desire for God's glorification. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are delivering us. God, that you are rescuing us from sin. God, as I look at these lists of these, these items here, God, we pray that you would help us to see and to know and to trust and believe these things. God, that we'd be um, understanding that sin is our greatest enemy. God, we'd be honest about our defiance and really what, what should be our place of standing condemned before you. 
And yet, God, we thank you for the only hope that we have in Christ. God, that you deliver us. You deliver us from our greatest enemy. And so, God, I pray that we would live in gospel hope. God, I pray that we would live celebrating and marveling uh, in just wonder and awe at the great and glorious work that you've done on our behalf. God, would you help us? God, would you help us to see the, the depth and the magnitude of your deliverance on our behalf? We pray this in your name. Amen.